Welcome to the UC Architects Podcast. This is episode four for Link, recorded Saturday, July 28th, 2012. This week we're splitting the episode into dedicated podcasts for Exchange and Link in order to cover all the recent news. So this episode will be just about Link. I'm your host, Pat Richard. This week we have uh, co-host Link MVP Tom Arbuthnot, Exchange MVP Johan Veldas, and special guests Link MVP Elon Shudnow and Link MCM and MVP Kevin Peters. This week we'll be talking about the big Wave 15 preview being released, as well as Link topics, uh, including multi-party video, uh, VDI support with voice and video, uh, the change in server roles, including uh, co-locating, persistent chat, the Link web app with audio and video, the much awaited for Skype Federation, some integration with Exchange, uh, mobility, voice trunks, high availability and disaster recovery, installation, coexistence, migration, clients, everything. You name it, we're going to cover it this week on this week's episode. So start. Uh, we'll start with Tom. Tom, what are you up to these days? Hey guys, yeah, good to be on again. Um, we just recently had our uh, Link London user group on Thursday night of the week just gone. Um, really good to be talking the 2013 stuff, so looking forward to talking about that on the podcast too. Great, great, good to hear about that. Um, Johan, what are you up to these days? Well, um, just implemented a Link environment with an architect um, office in Netherlands, which got some... Uh, extra office in Asia, so it's always an advantage uh, surely about uh, the audio and the, the latency, so it's pretty nice. And besides that, I've got a small look at the uh, link, uh, about uh, the, the new link version and new exchange version. Oh, very good, very good. And uh, of course, uh, this week we've got uh, two special guests, so uh, a, a colleague, a, a Link MCM friend of mine for uh, several years. Uh, Elon, what are you up to these days? Hey, Pat, thanks for having me. Um, so these days I'm pretty much, so uh, I'm working in a, a major, um, well, it's a hospital in the United States. It's 20,000 users, um, many locations, some hospitals, some corporate offices, um, again, 20,000 users, uh, full PBX replacement across all their sites over the next couple of years. Um, so I'm really helping them out with that. And I'm sure, you know, as we progress, we'll, we'll be helping them implement, uh, link 2013 when it comes out. So that's pretty much what I'm up to these days. Great. Now, are in the hospital, are they putting um, like link phones in the hospital rooms or is this just for staff? Yes, we haven't gotten to that point yet. We really just started a couple weeks ago. It's just more just um, assessing uh, the environment. Um, we have yet to get into design. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there's going to be, uh, I mean, there will be uh, phones there, physical hard phones, um, soft phones, uh, the Link 2010 uh, attendant console. And there will also be some third-party attendant uh, consoles in there uh, for users who require additional features. Um, we have really haven't chosen a vendor for those yet, um, but uh, you know, as time goes on, we'll be we'll be helping them choose a, a vendor for that. Great, great. And uh, Elon's uh, website is uh, www.shudnow.net, and he's on Twitter at Elon Shudnow. And next up, uh, Kevin, the guy who I pester the most for uh, for help when I'm stuck in uh, in link Kevin what do you have to do these days um, besides the full-time job of answering your questions <laughs> <laughs> kidding um, I'm doing a I'm, I'm 
lead architect on a couple of deployments we're doing. Um, two of them are, are global deployments where we're doing PBX replacements over um, one's 18 months, a couple hundred sites. The others over the next 12 to 24 months, they don't have an exact time frame, and it's about 120 sites. So all in all, we're impacting about 100,000 users between those two, and I'm also doing uh, architecture on a couple other sites. And trying to find time to, uh, to blog on top of uh, playing very heavily with the, the 13 beta stuff. Ah, okay. So you have plenty of free time available is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And, of course, your blog is uh, www.ocsguy.com and Twitter at LinkGuy. So very good. And uh, for me, I'm not doing too much. I just rolled off one project, rolling on to... Uh, another one actually rolling back to a previous project for a DOD contractor, so it's uh, uh, fun times for that. So in the last couple of weeks, we've had uh, some uh, some exciting news from Microsoft. Of course, we had the, the big Wave 15 preview being released, and uh, Wave 15 consisting of uh, Office, Link, Exchange, and Office 365, and of course, a couple weeks before that, we had Windows 8 and uh, Server 2012. So what does everybody think about this whole Big Bang approach with releasing all these these previews at one time? You think it's good or bad? I'll throw in my two cents. I think if you're a generalist, it's a really hard time. So for guys that do Exchange and Server and Link and everything else, they're going to know have a really tough go at it with all these products coming out at once but it's pretty exciting um for somebody who gets to specialize it's you know it's not too bad too bad of a deal for me but for everybody else i think it's probably you know it's probably pretty rough i was going to say that you know the, the issue that i've seen in the past is where uh one new version will come out and it'll have some exciting features that rely that uh, as far as integration with another product in a version that's not out yet and then you kind of have to wait for that product to come out in order to kind of realize the, those features together. So from the Big Bang approach, I like that. And we're going to talk about some of the, the integration between Link and Exchange here in a minute. But um, I, think, I think you're right. For a generalist, it's going to be very tough. I mean, you've got a, a new operating system. You've got new versions of each of the applications. And, you know, it's going to be a lot to get used to. But from uh, an integration standpoint, I, I think it's going to be great. You know, and I agree with that. So, uh, for example, like myself, um, I do exchange server-based stuff, link. Um, so it's definitely going to be a, a big challenge going forward, you know, having to learn all those products at one time. But I think the the benefit of them releasing everything in this um, big bang approach, right, is that the the product groups are, are better aligned. Um, whereas before, right, let's say exchange were to come out and then link were to come out six months later and so on. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much the product group is aligned, but I mean, going forward and with everything coming out at once, I, I believe they're going to be better aligned and better well, integrated. Right. And I, I, I think the, the fact that the client side pieces are coming out at the same time as the server side pieces is a, a complete win-win because now we've got some features that you, you really can't turn on until you have both of those matched up. And if you've, uh, if you missed the keynote, we will have a link to the, the keynote address uh, on our website. So, all right, so we'll head into the, the dedicated link uh, stuff for this week. Of course, Link 2013, the, the customer preview was released, as we just mentioned, and it comes with it a host of new features. 
And we've got a bunch of them to talk about today. So uh, we'll go down the list. The first I have is multi-part, uh, multi-party video and HD video, so 1080p. And we see that uh, being embraced uh, in more places throughout the various clients. So uh, what's everybody think about that? Oh, I think it's uh, pretty cool because, you know, in Link, you need, uh, for some things, you need third-party solutions, especially the, the, the multi-party uh, video. And I, now they've built it in, built in the Link client, which is, um, you know, I think a lot of companies will, will like the feature. The HD video, yeah. I'm doubting if it will be used uh, much. Here in the Netherlands, we don't see uh, HD uh, being used many times for video conferencing, uh, but I don't know how is it uh, how it is on the other side of the of the ocean. I think on on the HD front, there's been a even though it's supported in 2010, the kind of the quad core machine has been a bit of a barrier to entry, um, and the the available bandwidth is the other one. Um, what we're seeing in 2013 with the the SVC and and taking advantage of the Sandy Bridge and Ivy Bridge processes brings down the kind of typical CPU requirement or or more more makes the typical laptop and desktop today able to do HD much easier. Um, Obviously the bandwidth is still a a bit of a challenge uh, in some certain circumstances particularly when you're looking at multi-party. Yeah yeah definitely we did um uh, earlier in the week, we did a seven-person conference call uh, on the U2 environment. We have a 2013 environment uh, standing up, and we did seven, I think seven people. Everybody had cams that were capable of 1080p, and, man, the, the media requirements um, for moving that much data is pretty substantial. I think it, at the highest point, I saw my network adapter go up to about four megs of traffic. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, I'm getting five continuous video streams, which is really cool. Um, I, I think it's a, it's nice to have 1080p for five different people, but I don't know that it's uh, that it's necessarily something that is is going to be in, incredibly valuable. I think it's it's great that in in Link it's no longer you know active speaker and last speaker type of video. Um, it is you know multi-party and you can see up to those five streams and you have some choice for moving it around. And it's great that we can get up you know above that. Uh, that um, up to like a 720p now or a 1080p now in, in a conference. But I don't see that being, at least right now with the way, you know, MPLS costs are and Internet costs are, I still don't see that being a, a huge uh, uptick in adoption for Link. I think it's going to be a nice to have that, you know, peer-to-peer might get used a little more, but I think in the in the conferencing scenarios, and unless you're doing like the executive conferences, you probably won't use it as much just because you don't want, you know, thousands of users doing 1080p streams at a time. I think the, the, the part I like about the new introduction on the HD video capabilities is that right, there's a new codec, right, that's that supported H.264. Um, but the key thing to note is that H.264 support will only be with the new Link right, 2013 clients. Um, that isn't to say that RT video is completely gone. Right, so for backwards compatibility, because a Link 2010 client can connect to a Link 2013 pool, right, the Link 2013 MC will support RT video for downstream video to those clients. Um, but I, you know, I, I really like the fact that we are able to use the 1080p video now for peer-to-peer and and the MCU. It's a it's a big thing I've wanted for the last several years, right, since. Um, OCS and Link 2010 really supports up to VGA on the front end MCU. 
Um, so I, I think having that option there is still, you know, I, I desired it. So I'm glad it's there. Right. And, and for people that where you want to restrict that down, right, you don't have to have it up to 1080p. You can still scale it down and there's, there's going to be some client policies that you can push out to clients. So the resolutions aren't as high, which will scale the, the video traffic down, the bandwidth requirements down a little bit. So there will be some flexibility in how you use it. Yeah, I think one thing that's going to be very important is if you plan on deploying that, um, you, you definitely want to deploy the 2013 client. Um, I'm always a fan of having the new client for the new features and things like that. But from a server load standpoint, if, if everybody's using the 2013 client and you're using SVC, then there's no transcoding done on the server, and there's a lot less workload um, on the MCU because of that. So there's, you know, no transcoding. Everybody's getting the same stream and breaking off the pieces of it that they need, right? Um, so it's going to be very, very important to have your, your folks on the 2013 client when that comes out um, just for the, the sheer um, sizing savings or processor savings on your, uh, your MCUs. That's a really good point, Kevin, and, and it's important to point out that as you're in a, a mixed mode environment between, as, as Elan was saying, between the 20, uh, 2010 and 2013 clients, you're actually putting quite a lot of additional load on by having to do both RTV and the new uh, H.264 SVC. So the sooner you can migrate to an all 2013 platform, the, the better for resources. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great. And um, of course, we'll we'll talk about some of the the multi-party video pieces with Link Web App here in a minute too. Um, next up, we have uh, VDI support with voice and video, and this is uh, perfect timing uh, based on my current client. So, how is VDI support different now in 2013 than in 2010? So, I know that they introduced a, a new plugin that would get installed on the actual um, VDI end, right? And that that plugin would essentially allow you to use local audio and video. So the transcoding really isn't done and the processing isn't done at the server level. It's still done at the client level, right? So I mean, that's that's pretty much the biggest introduction in 2013 and how they're handling VDI with audio video support. Yeah, I think that's the, the big deal. Like as, as you put it, the transcoding and all the different audio and video processings done on the, the actual thin clients now and on at a hardware level. So it's not done over a virtualized connection um, through a remote desktop session. So it's a lot more controllable. Uh, it was it's definitely something that was different than in 2010 when you, you really had no choice. Everything was done on whatever device was running the session. And now with you know with 2013, you're not limited to having thin clients with the USB ports turned on and having a tethered phone. You can have a you know what will eventually be probably a link optimized thin client rolled out with a software build that actually supports using the processor and memory and available resources on that thin client. So I, I think that's a huge deal. We have a lot of clients that are really into that idea. Um, and it also could potentially help, uh, this architecture could potentially help with the BYOD initiatives that are going around pretty much everywhere these days. Look at the client, right? There is a client virtualization support article out there. And, and if you looked at Link 2010, Right, there was a there was a big difference between using a thin client and using a full blown desktop machine uh, with you know what's supported. So I think you know with with the new VDI experience, you'll we'll be seeing thin clients and full blown desktop clients uh, be a lot more uh, aligned with their feature support. So it's definitely a big step forward because basically there wasn't an audio and video story on VDI in 2010. 
Um, there was some documents around Citrix about how you could stream it if you optimized your network, um, which basically meant having megs and megs of bandwidth between the the VDI uh, servers hosting the desktops and, and the actual VDI clients, um, and also having a shed load of processing power on the clients because they're running all the audio and video. And this, this new model of offloading the media to the thin client um, really adds a lot of benefit. I think it's, it's worth mentioning as well, it's not going to be a, a Microsoft-only option as far as VDI goes. So obviously the Microsoft VDI uh, will be supported, but also Citrix uh, have announced support for this plugin model and VMware have announced support with Vue. Um, so hopefully all the major VDI platforms will adopt ability to... Uh, do the media locally and basically what it's doing is overlaying the video onto the remote desktop by um, watching screen coordinates so the video stays local the audio stays local and the to the user it appears like they're using a single client oh interesting interesting and we'll have uh, we'll have the links to the the citrix information uh, on our uh, website as well so next up I, I wanted to talk about how the roles change and um, the differences uh, coming in 2013. And the, and the biggest one, or, or one that I'm really excited about, is the fact that they're finally moving XMPP um, off of a dedicated box, and that is going to allow us to put it on the Edge server as just an additional role and have that uh, capability without having to have server sprawl, as well as getting... Uh, a high availability for XMPP. But there's also some other changes in the roles as far as where things can be located, including uh, the monitoring server and the archiving server. Um, has anybody played with uh, with that and putting those on the front ends? I actually haven't played with the monitoring and archiving stuff. I've been um, so busy with just the front ends and conferencing functionalities that I haven't looked at that yet. Um, I do think the XMPP architecture is really cool. Um, so the the big thing that you, you pointed out a second ago, the capability of having HA for your XMPP servers, um, that's huge. Yeah, I, I have had some customers really want to use XMPP but kind of balk at the idea because there was no HA. And any kind of theoretical HA that I could come up with was, was kludgy at best. So I think we'll see a, a much larger adoption of XMPP now that we can put it all in the same box and have it you know high availability for it pat pats what was the what was the driver for xmpp in those environments just out of interest um <laughs> they just wanted to have that that federation capability there um not that they thought that they were going to utilize it per se like there was no driving need for it it was more towards hey if we're going to open federate let's make sure we can connect to just about everybody we can and um, and so that's kind of what was driving that. Uh, I think I think it's a really good thing that it's now included on the edge for sure, um, I, and, and people will probably start to use it because it's there. But typically in our enterprise clients, we haven't seen anybody clamouring to use XMPP even if it was there. Um, but it's nice for the kind of cross compatibility story for sure. Another thing that um, that I was reading about and I haven't played around with yet is now that the director role is more optional. And um, I, I kind of I'm somewhat questioning that, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I was I was reading a little bit more into that and doing a little bit more research. So the the director role was always optional, right? But the the approach that Microsoft's taking is that 
Um, it was always a recommended role. And now they're moving away from um, putting it as a recommended role in all the documentation just to align with their approach for consolidation, right? So there's a few reasons why the director role was recommended in the past, um, but they're they're trying to do this whole initiative where uh, consolidation roles and, and part of that consolidation is, is uh, not necessarily recommending it as much. Um, so that, that's pretty much the approach I've seen that Microsoft's taking. So do you think that, so from a 2010 perspective, you know, a big thing with having a director pool was to mitigate impact for, uh, say, a, a denial of service attack, as well as the ability to handle redirection for various pools. Is Are those things being handled differently now in, in 2013, or is Microsoft just downplaying that? They're just downplaying it, right? So, for example, the... Uh, the big thing when you said the redirection, right? Well, there was a, an endpoint configuration that cache file in link 2010. So even if you were to connect to a director and they get redirected to your pool, well, the client caches that pool and it stops using the director. So even in, from that perspective in 2010, it really wasn't used as much. So I, I really think it's just that they're downplaying the role more in 2013. And and even the link client for 2013 still has that endpoint configuration that cache file. So I don't really think any functionality has changed from what I've seen. Again, it's just they're downplaying it, it seems. The one thing I'll, I'll throw in is I think they've included, you, when you got the 301 redirect from a, a 2010 director or from a 2010 server that was a server other than your home pool server, uh, you would you would get the Q equals 0.7 and the Q equals 0.3, which were your primary and secondary pools or primary and backup pools. And I haven't seen this yet, but I, I read a note that said, that even if you're on your primary pool now, you'll get uh, both pieces of information. So that's the only change I've heard of in the way the whole redirection works. Um, the biggest thing I see is, you know, from um, fr from a security standpoint, um, if, if our large enterprise customers and, and whatnot are basically any customer that has a sizable environment and security conscious, uh, I'm still going to recommend directors for the simple URLs and for the, the sheer fact that it's just one more step between the outside world and your front-end servers. But I don't see, you know, I, I kind of saw them as optional before, so I don't see it as a, a big change either. I think it's just a little bit of a change in how it's being marketed to everyone during the deployment. But if you had directors before, for security reasons, you're probably still going to want them. Yeah, I would agree. So with, with having the ability to have a monitoring role on the front-end and or an archiving role, on the front end instead of having dedicated boxes. Do you think we're going to see more adoption of those services? And how does uh, monitoring and archiving uh, deal with HA? What's the HA role for or model for uh, these two roles? Well, I think it's going to change because we thought a customer needs a separate server for the monitoring and archiving role in 2010. Yeah, some customers uh, will say, well, then we don't. Then we uh, we don't want to use it. Well, uh, so I see there's a as a big advantage that you, that you can co-host it on the, the front-end server, and also um, the, the both roles need a SQL uh, database to uh, to write their info to. And since SQL mirroring is now supported in 2013, yeah, it's a big advantage I think. 
Yeah, I, I will say it's um, it's definitely important to have a monitoring server in any deployment where you're going to do voice. So I've always pushed that, and I see this as being a very nice thing. Um, I don't think it's going to necessarily tick up the adoption of monitoring. Um, most folks who do voice deployments and um, are, are going to recommend a monitoring server just so you can find out what's going on when there's a bad call. And from an archiving standpoint, I see that as more of kind of a, a compliance uh, decision and less of an IT decision. Uh, and maybe maybe I just spend too much time working with, like, uh, the larger enterprises and I'm a little disconnected from the small and medium business now, which is a complete 180 from last year. But um, at this point, I see archiving not really being impacted much. And monitoring, if you're doing voice, you know, is probably a good idea to begin with. It is it is very nice, though. Um, I think it might lower some uh, uh, TCO for a link deployment to be able to co-locate those things. So yeah. I, I, I see those as being very good. I've, I've played with the, the new monitoring archiving deployment on the front end, and I don't think it's going to change anybody's world massively. Um, like Kevin said, anybody doing voice should be deploying monitoring. It's just so valuable. The stats and the information you get out of it, any old-school IPVVX, you pay a fortune for that kind of information from a third party, and it's all out of the box on link. Um, what's, what's nice is it drops a server role, um, for small deployments, so whereas typically a minimum voice deployment is going to be a, a link standard edition, a monitoring server, and SQL for that monitoring server database, um, you can drop down as low as a standard edition server and a, a SQL database to hold the monitoring data. So you're dropping a whole server on a small deployment, which is really nice. On, on big deployments, it's nice because you're dropping that server, but it doesn't change the world, but it's just a nice touch. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. With, yeah. It, it's not fun for the small environments such as we have in the Netherlands. For example, uh, you know, 50 or 100 users who want to use the enterprise voice, but yeah, the, then don't want to uh, implement the, the monitoring rule because it's an additional license, uh, OS license, and um, yeah, administration functionalities are are, uh, are needed to uh, to keep the server uh, up to date, etc. So yeah. For small environments, I, I think it's a big advantage for enterprise environments. And I agree with you. It you know, probably will be a dedicated server. Yeah, interesting. It, it'll be nice to uh, to combine some of those. I think I think that'll go well. Uh, what about persistent chat? So previously in 2010, it was called group chat, and uh, I didn't really see a whole lot of adoption of this except for in some financial institutions, and it was challenging I'll say to get it installed and, and working and everything and of course it required a, a separate client for the end users and in 2013 it's now called persistent class um, and what's going on with this who's played with this you know a lot of us right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I deployed a, a enterprise uh, pool in my lab and deployed a dedicated uh, persistent chat server um, so I think uh, I think it's good. I think it's going to really increase adoption in 2013, um, as you said, Pat. Right, the uh, the biggest challenge there in uh, user adoption was uh, that you had a separate client to deploy and manage. You had a separate server to deploy and manage. It, it, it wasn't really just that. It was also the fact that the actual installation experience and the management experience was very um, alien to how you would manage your uh, Link 2010 uh, front end server, your monitoring server, really your ad server, I mean, really all the other server roles. 
right? For example, in Link 2010, you had to pre-create the databases. You had to create a uh, uh, channel service, a lookup service manually. Um, again, pre-create those databases, assign permissions manually. So it's really, again, alien to the 2010 um, experience when it comes to all the other rules. Whereas in 2013, really, it's it's the same experience as you get with deploying your front-end server um, as you deploy your ad server, your monitoring server, and so on, right? So you just publish the persistent chat server in your topology, right? And then when you once you go ahead and publish it, it will create those databases for you automatically. Right, so that and the fact that now you can also manage persistent chat in the actual link uh, 2013 control panel. So you can create chat rooms, you can um, create categories, you can create managers, right, who can manage um, who's members, who's a member of a specific chat room. You can create um, a role called creators that can essentially, you know, manage chat rooms as well as create managers and assign them to, to specific categories. In, in specific chat rooms. So uh, I think it's really going to pick up adoption in 2013 just because it's a first-class citizen now and, uh, and and the management is all integrated into Topology Builder and the control panel. I definitely agree with you. Um, the, the whole being built in and being a first-class role and having it in one client, um, we've deployed it, and I was never a big group chat fan. Um, we deployed it when we did our 2013 um, preview pools last week, and since we've put it out, we have five or six group chat rooms, and we're putting things in them, and the way I like to look at it is it's saving me from seeing something in my inbox or seeing a hundred threads of something in my inbox, and it gives me a nice way to go for a particular topic and look things up, so I'm hoping that eventually group chat helps cut down on the amount of email I receive and helps provide me a, a good way to track things where I can look at all the contacts around something on a particular topic. So I'm really excited for it to be kind of integrated and, you know, more useful um, or, or at least more used. Yeah, I think in, in what I've seen both uh, February when, uh, when we looked at it originally from a client perspective, I thought it was a lot more friendly. I like the, the fact that you can join uh, a chat room and see all the historical data that's already in there, even even the stuff that was there before you joined it, so you can kind of get the context of, of the current conversations, as well as the fact that everything was built right into one client, I think is just going to drive uh, adoption for this. Oh, and, and another big thing with with persistent chat, right, is the is the HA topology. You know, in order to understand persistent chat, maybe we should spend a minute or so talking about the, the front end HA, right? So if, in Link 2010, right, there was something called a metro pool, and you essentially have uh, one pool stretch across two data centers, and it would require very low latency, high bandwidth, um, right? You can use something like a GSLB, uh, for example, F5 GTMs to distribute dev kittens across both sites, right? In 2013, that model changes. Um, Metro, according to the current 2013 preview, Metro is, is not going to be supported, but it will be possible. The new model is something called pool pairing, where you have one pool in one location, one pool in another location, and you SQL mirroring, right, to synchronize the, the databases, right? And the front ends use something called a backup service. And that backup service is essentially what replicates the data from one SQL mirror to another. And persistent chat, the model is a bit different. Right, you you have one persistent chat pool across your two data centers, right? And you're still using SQL mirroring, 
right? And you can have up to eight persistent um, chat pool members. And depending on your latency and bandwidth between your sites, you can, I mean, no matter what you'd have, you can have up to four servers active at any given time. If your bandwidth is good and your latency is low between your sites, you could have two active in one site, two active in another site. But if your bandwidth was not high enough and your latency was uh, poor, you would just have four active in one site and four passive in another site. So the HA models are really changing in, in Link 2013. And I think for the for the better. Great, great. It'll be, uh, I'm looking forward to having some time in my lab to, uh, to play around with that a little bit more. So moving on now to uh, one thing that I absolutely fell in love with uh, was the Link web app. And um, of course, in OCS, we had CWA. And in Link 2010, we had, well, basically your, your OWA integration. Um, now we have Link web app, which has audio and video, including multi-party video. Um, and I'm really excited for this because I get a lot of people who are remote, not near a machine with a rich client. Um, this is going to be fabulous. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's, uh, it's a nice addition to the, to the product because uh, yeah, the, the IM feature, uh, which uh, you can include in uh, OI, it, yeah, it's not. It does not have many functions, and I don't see many clients are using it because yeah, the audio and video part was missing. Now with the addition of uh, the Link web app, which adds both audio and video, yeah, I think it's a nice addition for. Uh, People who are um, you know, working from uh, from home and don't have a link installed on it, because the, um, that that's also what you see uh, in some cases that uh, they don't have a machine of uh, of their company, but are using their home PC to connect to the uh, company environment. And in that case, yeah, they don't have the link web app installed on their local machine. So yeah, it's a great addition. Yeah, one thing I, I want to point out is it, it's not really taking over the role of the CWA server back in 2007 or the uh, OA integration in the 2010 environment. Um, it's more replacing the, the reach client and the link attendee client type functionality. So it's, it's all about meeting joins um, and, and not so much about just having access to IM from anywhere. Um, I do I do want to say, though, it's, it's really darn cool. Um, as, as I've mentioned a couple of times, we deployed the, the, the preview at uh, Unify, and we've had tons and tons and tons of play meetings. Uh, I think we were on for about an hour with right around 10 testers doing all the, um, all the Link Web App stuff. Um, we were all using different devices, so I dialed in from my Windows 8 slate without a Link client. Um, we had people using iPads and and, and whatnot, and everybody just hit websites and, and joined in the meeting and had video and things like that. It was it was really cool stuff. We've been playing with it too quite a lot, and it is it's it's epic. The, the kind of the meeting join experience now, um, just to bring people up to speed on it. Basically, if you send out a meeting invite now, people will hit a web page if they don't have the link client, and uh, I think it's native on IE. I haven't seen a plugin download. For other browsers, it will be a small plugin, about a 15 meg download, um, and then they get full modality. They get voice, they get video, everything within the browser. So from from hitting a meeting link to joining a meeting now, it's no longer required to download that attendee client to get all the modalities. Just a quick plug in, and uh, you're away. 
and with IE it doesn't take silver light and with video it 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 highlights the active speaker as well just like in the rich client yeah it's got the, the little blue line under the active speaker I, I think all in all um, it was really fair to say that the uh, the old reach or, or link web, web app in 2010 just really wasn't ready for prime time and it didn't compare favorably to to things like um, you know go to meeting or, or webex and I think at this point it's really favorable it's a it's a lot better experience across different platforms and it you know from performance testing standpoint uh, when we did you know only 10 or so users uh, we still saw great performance and it was not a, a large load at all on our servers so we were very happy with that very cool um, the one thing that people have uh, certainly been waiting for is integration with Skype and now with 2013 we'll have that via federation and um, what is that experience like for uh, both a installation perspective and um, a client perspective? Yeah, this is this is quite a bond that people have been asking about for some time since Microsoft bought Skype, um, and it's a really nice uh, nice step forward. We're going to have IM and presence and and peer to peer audio as far as federation goes. So um, Microsoft are obviously pushing Skype with the the home. 365 system um, so that will be the primary platform for audio and video as far as home users go and for the enterprise it will be link and bringing those two worlds together is uh, this is sort of the first step getting peer-to-peer -peer IM and audio and hopefully we'll see that develop as, uh, as the wave develops. I see it as a, a huge thing for uh, business and consumer integration as you mentioned Skype's going to be the you know one of the choices for the home user and, and Link's going to be the choice for the business users. And um, it taps into a really large market. And I think there's uh, some good opportunity there to write some really cool custom apps. Uh, not that anyone's on the phone is from a, a company that does that type of stuff, Tom or I. Um, but there's a, a really good opportunity there for some CDP type stuff and, and whatnot where you can, you know, go through and really integrate Skype into Link. And that's something that no other UC platform is going to have access to. You know the, you know the we have, we have video and audio to the live messenger. We have IM to Yahoo and IM to AOL and, and presence to both of those. And now Skype with the the audio and everything. I I just think it's, you know, this is a big game changer. Microsoft knew what they were doing when they bought Skype, and it, you know, this is gonna really enable um, a consumer and and business uh, meeting and melding that will be very powerful in the future. I think. And so this is, the Federation with Skype is audio only, correct? Or does it include video? No, at RTM it will be audio only um, and peer-to-peer -peer, um, audio only. Um, hopefully that's something we'll see develop in the future, but certainly for RTM it's, it's audio and IM and presence. And do we need, it requires the, the um, Office 2013 package from a client perspective as well, right? Or is that going to uh, work with legacy versions of, of the clients? I don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> Does anybody on? No, I don't think there's been a whole lot of information on how exactly the, the Skype integration is going to work as of yet. Yeah, it's so new. I mean, right. even even in B1R, there was it wasn't there. So the fact that it's even, you know, something they're starting to talk about now and they're starting to put timeframes around, you know, if it, if it hits at RTM and the features are there, that's going to be a huge deal. I mean, something, um, 
something as, as big as, as buying a buying a company and setting up a new form of federation, you know, in, in the amount of time that this is being done in, I mean, if you look at it, how long ago was the Skype purchase? Yeah, like a year ago, a little over a year ago, I think. Yeah, I, I don't even know if it was that long. I'm, I'm trying to think back to the exact date. It, you know, but maybe it was in the works all this time, but it seems, you know, it, it seems rather quick and nimble for Microsoft to have gotten it in to 13 in the fashion that they have, at least at least to me. Yeah, so it was in May May of last year is when they bought it. Okay, so maybe it's not that quick and nimble. <laughs> no, but I, I do know that, you know, like, like you guys mentioned, it's it's one thing that people have just been constantly asking about is when can when can you federate with Skype? And so it's nice to see that this is uh, uh, finally coming to fruition here. So uh, from an integration with uh, Exchange perspective, um, there are a couple of things that are changed in in 2013, and one is that there's now the ability to have a single contact store uh, with Exchange. So all of your link contacts are are stored in Exchange itself, and uh, I think this is great. I mean, we we had uh, you know Link and OCS where you had uh, one set of contacts on your IM client and on your phone and everything, and that's great. And now we're going to integrate this into your email contact list. Um, I think this is a fabulous move on Microsoft's perspective or Microsoft's p part, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. And there's also the ability to have HD photos uh, for Link uh, stored within Exchange 2013 as well. Who's played with this so far? Well, I haven't played with it quite yet. Um, I think the integration story there is a, a lot different than what we're currently used to in 2010, right? So if we look at uh, both Exchange 2013 and Link 2013, there's a, a new authentication feature that, uh, um, well, it's OAuth, right? It's publicly out there, but, uh, but Microsoft's using it for for Exchange and Link communication, right? And it will use a certificate. So for example, when you deploy Exchange 2013, it'll uh, you can create... Uh, an OAuth certificate, and then any additional exchange server you introduce will get that certificate. And same thing with Link 2013, right? When you first introduce your first front-end server, you'll create an OAuth certificate, which gets stored in your CMS, right, your central management store. Any additional servers you introduce will, will replicate that out, right? And that allows you to use OAuth between Link 2013 and Exchange 2013, right? And part of that OAuth will let you do um, things like that unified contact store, Right, so by default, clients will store their contacts in an exchange, right? And after that, um, you could, on a client-by-client -client basis, remove the, the con unified contact store functionality and, and replicate those contacts back to your to your Link 2013 databases. Very cool. And along with uh, the unified contact store and and HD photos, we also have the ability for archiving, link archiving. Uh, to have the data stored in Exchange 2013 so that you can do a full multi-mailbox search in Exchange and have it include uh, IM information. So I think from, um, from an e-discovery standpoint, I think that's a, a, a huge win um, for organizations. Yeah, I think I think this is a, a byproduct of all the, the the whole wave coming out at the same time as as Elan said, we're seeing much tighter integration between the products, um, and it's it's kind of a, a double-edged sword really. It's really nice if if you're deploying 
all the products at the same time um, once you get to big enterprise uh, customers it's rare you're doing that to be honest um, so things like the HD contact photo stored in Exchange 2013 when, when you've got that up and running that looks really awesome um, but that is an Exchange 2013 only feature um, so it's worth understanding what you get when you roll out the products together versus what you get when you might be on a down level version of either a link or exchange depending on which way you're looking at it right right uh, next up we have uh, the changes in uh, mobility from a, a VoIP and video perspective and I know some of you guys were playing around with this and and, and doing some blog posts about it so what's new what changes uh, what stays the same the fact that we're gonna have a better rich integration with you know having audio having video in there uh, being able to see PowerPoint presentations depending on the client. Um, so I think it'll just be more of a, you know, more feature rich than we currently see in the, in the wave one release of the mobile clients. Do, do you, is there a change in how data goes, whether it's OTA or, or what? A great deal of specifics about uh, the mobile VoIP and video, other than that it will definitely be supported in this wave and it will be, Android, iOS, and uh, Windows Phone, um, and it'll be Wi-Fi and I believe mobile data. Um, but yeah, we're still waiting on more information on the specifics of how that will work and what it will look like. Great, and uh, I know one of you guys wanted to talk about voice trunks and how that's different in uh, in this wave. What's going on with voice trunks? Yeah, that was me. So. Right in link 2010, um, Microsoft introduced the capability of you being able to have one mediation server and talk to multiple gateways. Right, if we look back to OCS, we only had the ability to do one to one. So now in 2013, we really can have any mediation server talk to any gateway and vice versa. Right, and they introduced this feature called trunks. Right, so if you look at uh, at 2010, right, if we go into Palgy and we create a gateway, you assign that gateway to a mediation server. Right, and that mediation server then can talk to that gateway and you cannot sign any other mediation servers to that gateway. Well, Trunks really takes care of that, right? Because now we can have a mediation server, we can have a gateway, and then we cre create a trunk saying this mediation server can talk to this gateway. And then if you have another mediation server or a mediation pool, you just create a trunk saying that mediation pool can now talk to to that gateway as well. So that's a that's a huge change in uh, in uh you know, flexibility and how your routing um, will work. Yeah, definitely there's um, there's a big advantage to having that, the end-to-end -end routing going on. And then the other thing I, I like that I saw was the ability to have link serve as the upstream routing engine. So as an example, if you have, you know, um, a 1,000 phone numbers that are going to hang off of PBX and, you know, 18,000 users that are going to be on Link, you could actually have Link be the upstream routing guy and then have the calls route down to um, the PBX, assuming it's, you know, compatible um, via Link. So it, it provides a little more flexibility in how you deploy Link with that. Good. And Kevin, you wanted to talk about um, high availability and, and disaster recovery and how that's different in Exchange uh, 2013, or uh, Link 2013. And, of course, we talked about uh, some of the things earlier with XMPP uh, and things like that. But um, can you go into a little more depth with that? Yeah. So one of the big things, the goal for high availability in 2010 was to keep the registrar service up, which would keep voice calls routing. Presence wasn't a concern. Conferencing wasn't a concern. 
Um, even your user contact list wasn't a real big concern. Um, and I, I think, you know, those things probably would have been nice to have, but they only had so many cycles to do on dev. Um, when it comes to 2013 now, you have, you know, a, a pool, a, a peer pool where you can configure a backup pool for your pool with another pool. And through the, through the processes that have been added now, all your data is over there. So there's a lot more functionality in a, a restore process. So as, as for today, I have some clients that have, you know, two data centers with a pool in each. And if they fail from one data center to the other, there's a manual process. We're doing DB imports, force user moves, all these kinds of things to make sure that, you know, if they're going to have any kind of outage more than a few minutes, that they can get their people back up and working because, you know, voice isn't the only workload that's critical in, in today's enterprises or today's businesses. You know, conferencing is a huge deal now, and, you know, having your contact list is a big deal. So the way they engineered links so that, you know, you can have those peer pools or backup pools um, also carry the weight for, you know, your conferencing loads really just makes a huge amount of difference. One of the, the things with 2010, right, because, um, again, MetroSite, as I mentioned earlier, goes away, right? It's not supported as possible. But I think one of the, the great things now with uh, with the new HA architecture is that response group is actually going to have some supported um, ability to, to fail over to the other pool, right? So in, in 2010, um, you could back up your response groups and you can import response groups, right? But there's some new options with um, with response groups. You would still back up your response group if your primary, you know, once your primary pool fails and you fail over to your to your paired pool, right, in your second data center, you essentially re-import those response groups into that second pool, right? That but that import mechanism has has a new function that allows you to maintain application ownership of your primary pool. Right, so things will still function, you know, once you've imported the, the response group settings in your second pool. But let's say, for example, your primary pool where it, it would something was majorly wrong with it, right? You have to decommission it. It's it's essentially gone, destroyed. You could still import, re-import those response group settings again on your DR pool, but you would essentially uh, change your switch to take application ownership on that second pool. Right, and then you can reintroduce another paired uh, pool infrastructure back in your other data center. And, and call parking is also supported, right? So once you uh, once users start, you know, talking to that pool pair in your DR infrastructure, you essentially they you don't really have to do anything, right? You have a second orbit range defined in your DR pool, and users automatically have uh, access to call parking features. So, you know, I, I think with the the DR. Right, and again, because there's no metro pool, that means you can have you can have an HA pool, a paired pool, farther away. Right, there's no more uh, low latency requirement. You can have that, you know, one on the west coast, one on the east coast, pair your pools. Right, have your SQL mirrored data replicating, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's just a, a much better solution overall. I think. And I think part of what made that possible is as well as the way or at least improve the HA and the performance of Link in general was the way that some of the things that used to go back to the back-end database um, now just sit on the, the front-end servers and aren't written back as often. So that's that's a really important change from the SQL standpoint. The bottleneck of a, a pool, you know, the limit of a pool of 10 servers has always been kind of around how much, you know, how many servers can we have connecting back to the SQL box or the SQL cluster. And, you know, moving forward, um, as of right now, SQL clustering is not going to be supported. So now it's, you know, off the mirroring and things like that. 
So, you know, one of the things they had to do was look at how do we, you know, send less data back to SQL all the time. And that's, you know, with the lazy writes thing they're doing now, they're not writing every single presence update back to the database. And then down on the front-end servers, they're storing more and more on on the local instances on each front-end server. And then it's, you know, using the replication, the Interpol replication, to replicate each user's data to their secondary and, and um, other servers. So every user now has three servers they're associated with if there's enough in the pool for that. And, and what happens is, you know, if I have front ends one through ten, you know, um, my data will be on maybe one and four and seven, and there's different upgrade domains that you place the different front ends into so a user gets spread across the different upgrade domains. You're less likely to take out their uh, their pools and whatnot. So it's it's a really, really interesting um, concept, and it also helped uh, scaling a pool. So now, you know, the, the support per pool for active users is still around the same as it was in Link 2010, uh, or per front end. So, you know, we're still getting somewhere around the 10,000 users per front end mark, but now we can put 20,000 front ends in a pool instead of, or, I'm sorry, 20,000, that'd be a lot. Um, we can put 20 front ends in a pool now instead of having 10, and that gives us the ability to put more of our eggs in one basket, I guess, um, which, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing because of the, the peering options. What about the 20 front ends in, in the pool, right? And with that, with that supported model now, uh, there's also no more dedicated audio video conferencing servers just because you can, it's more of a brick model, right? You just add more front end servers now. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I've got to think that some of these, uh, some of these improvements in architecture have probably been driven by the uh, Office 365 team and, and Microsoft's desire to scale that. And I think we're seeing some of the benefits of that that will scale well to larger customers as well and larger deployments. So I think everybody's getting the benefit of, of Microsoft using this as a hosting platform. I think, uh, Kevin, you've done a really good job there of explaining how it's working technically. Um, it's you can kind of put it down to a few key areas, I guess. The user experience now for failover is is much better. Um, they're not getting quite as a, a rough experience as far as the voice resiliency mode goes. Um, for an admin, it's a lot better because losing a, an FE or even a pool is is much less of a bother because the the users providing you've got this paired pool model will just flip over to the other pool and kind of carry on as usual as long as you've got a, a witness uh, as far as your, your pool pairing goes. Um, it's, it's important to note that, as, as Kevin said, the, the cluster model is no longer supported. So in one way, that's making HA for Link much, much more accessible than before. It's much easier to achieve a SQL mirroring setup with a couple of servers and, and local storage than it is to rock into a customer and say, so if you want Link HA, you, you have to have a SQL cluster. Um, at the enterprise level, people have typically already got SQL clusters and it's kind of not a big deal, they don't miss a beat. Um, for kind of anybody below that, it was always a bit of a challenge to say, well, you need to spin up a, a SQL cluster for Link. Um, whereas now with mirroring, it's, uh, it's very accessible. I, I gotta say, working with a lot of enterprise customers, um, they don't even say, oh, well, we've got SQL clustering, it's cool. They say, oh, can we do DAS and, and not do SQL clustering, please? So, because when you get into the SQL clustering, you're, you know, you've got the network team involved, you've got the SQL team involved, you've got the OS team involved, you've got the SAN team involved. Um, it, it just gets to be a mess. And then the SQL clustering, the failover wasn't automatic within the link. 
So, or it wasn't instantaneous, rather. It was automatic. So when you had a node failure, you know, it, it would actually cause some disconnects and some pain. So I don't know of any of my enterprise customers that aren't happy to see clustering requirements go away. And, you know, they're all thrilled about the mirroring stuff to be able to say, you know what, instead of having like seven teams to deal with every time I have a problem with the back end, now I'm down to one or two. I think that'll be the 90% the of customers. I think it will probably side with that. I think there's a quite a few customers who are quite proud of their whole SQL cluster setup and might have a bit of a shock that the, the money they've invested in that isn't isn't supportable for a link on 2013. But yeah, net, it's definitely a good thing. I think those customers are going to be the same ones that are mad that they only need to use their HLB for port 843. Yep, that's that's the ones. Yep, those m massive hardware load balancers that are just doing web traffic. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to say that um, that was a big thing for Link 2010, right? Being able to do the DNS load balancing. Um, and I know there's not really a good way of doing the web proxy and getting away from hardware load balancers completely. But, you know, as we move towards 20, 2013 deployments, I see know less and less reason to ever do a um, a hardware load balancing across your entire environment just do DNS load balancing hardware load balance your web services and everything just gets so much easier as long as you're not dealing with like legacy clients legacy servers and whatnot that can't support it um, and even if you're doing DNS load balancing internally and you're still doing hardware on the edge to support things like pick and and whatnot, it's still just so much better to not have to deal with it on your front-end pools. Absolutely. I think it makes life so much easier for us. Moving on to um, installation, and how is the process different for installing versus uh, previous versions? And both from just the same role perspective as well as now that we're co-locating uh, some things like XMPP on the edge and monitoring and archiving on the front ends. How is it different now? Um, I think the good news is fundamentally it's not different. Um, so uh, we possibly should have said this at the top of the top of the show, but everything you know and love about Link 2010, so the the web control panel, the uh, the topology builder, and the PowerShell, um, it's all the same. So it's not like you're learning a new product here. In fact, it's a very easy step from 2010 to 2013 in terms of install and admin. Um, the difference on the co-located roles is just tick boxes on Topology Builder. So you build a front end now and you've got a tick box for monitoring, you've got a tick box for archiving. And, and exactly like before, once you've set your topology up and published it, the individual roles will uh, just pull down with Bootstrapper, pull down the, the binaries they need from the install media and uh, install away. So, um, yeah, not, not big changes, really, as far as deployment goes. It's, uh, it's pretty nice. I've, uh, I've found the same experience. Um, one of the things I like about the 2010 method of install and now moving into 2013 is the whole um, keep it simple, stupid kind of mentality about the install. Um, it makes it so, you know, consultants don't have to be um, – or you, you don't necessarily need a consultant to do the install. It's a little easier to do it yourself if you want to, which, you know, that's okay. I, I don't mind it too much. Hey, careful there. We're all consultants here. <laughs> you know, I, I'm okay with not clicking next. If you guys want to click next, I'll just publish the topology for you. It's, it's good for me. Um, as far as, you know, the wizards themselves, they're, they're great. Um, I, I love the certificate wizards. Um, I just can't stand when people 
don't use the certificate wizard and they go through and do all kinds of customization of their certificates, it's completely unnecessary. And I think with um, the 2010 wizard being as good as it was, you really never had to use anything but it to do your certificate request. And it takes so much hassle out of troubleshooting. So I, I really enjoy that part of the install. And, you know, I've, I've gone through my labs are running um, 2012 RC, and so I've been installing 2013 link on the 2012 RC server stuff, and I'm starting to adapt um, my scripts and whatnot for my installs to that. I'm also looking at um, updating the uh, quick UI from the ocsguy.com site to have um, a 2012 installer version for Link 2013. So, you know, hopefully sooner than later I can get all the, the bugs worked out of that one and, and get it out. I, I think from, a, from, a, from an install standpoint, there's really not a huge difference. So it's, you know, it's, it's relatively the same. I, I did mention OAuth earlier, right, for the Exchange 2013 and Link 2013 integration, right? So one difference um, in the install is that when you actually get to the certificate wizard, right, before you would just uh, request the, the front insert, right? You can choose the external website, the internal website, and for the pool all at one, some, all at one time. Um, but now there's a, a second certificate you get, right, and that's for the OAuth, right? And you can get that via your CA. So that, that's one new thing you will see during the certificate installation. Yeah, and this uh, last point, uh, the IPv6 uh, introduction uh, and support for, uh, for Link. It's also supported in uh, Link 2013. That's also something new with the install, which wasn't there in uh, 2010. Yeah, because in 2010, there was nothing that supported IPv6 from a Link perspective, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, well, uh, I think IPv6 is is still a, a I don't know about the other guys on the call, but it's still a pretty niche requirement today. Um, but you tend to see uh, government customers putting that down as one of their stipulations for future deployments. So it's uh, it's definitely nice to see. And obviously, as far as public stuff goes, and and having multiple IPs um, is is getting more and more difficult with IPv4. So for things like Edge, that could be uh, really interesting in the future. Yeah, for local networks, it yeah. probably will not be interesting. A, a quick survey of everybody on here, just because out, out of my own morbid curiosity, has anybody actually done a deployment where they put out IPv6? No. No? No. No, no, not at all. The no's have it. <laughs> so I, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, my I don't know how it is elsewhere, but in the U.S. it's still rare to even get your carrier for your home internet connection to be able to give it to you. And, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to the IPv6 other than relearning subnetting. Um, <laughs> but from a general standpoint, I think it's a really, you know, it's a really important thing. So the support being there is great, but I think in all practical implementations, other than government, we're going to have very, very few um, customers even implementing it. I know that um, that Comcast has turned on IPv6 and um, that's who I use uh, in my house. And uh, my my firewall does support. I have a Cisco ASA firewall, and uh, have been looking at uh, trying to get some time set aside to to play with that. But you know how that goes. Well, if you need help, let me know. I'll be happy to, to pound away some commands on the ASA for you. <laughs> my uh, my old security guy days. Yeah, great. Uh, and you mentioned your your quick uh, quick UI. Um, app and we'll uh, we'll toss a link to that on our uh, their, our website. I know I've used that a few times. It's a great little app for 
per performing um, uh, link tasks. So moving to um, uh, coexistence as well as migration, I know that uh, on the Exchange 2013 side, you cannot install a preview into an existing Exchange org. What about on the link side? Can you do it uh, in an existing link org? Uh, yeah, you, so you can, you can definitely install link preview bits and whatnot into a 2010 environment in your lab. Please, please, please don't do it in production. Please, please. So um, and we have clients that are in TAP that I'm working with, and, you know, it's getting better. Um, but the B1R clients, they were just – they were just not so good, and the server stuff wasn't so great. And, you know, beta 2s, or the refresh now, or the preview, whatever they're calling it, the, the names are getting confusing for me. Um, it's, it's a lot better, but, you know, I, I just definitely don't install it into, you know, your production network. Put in a lab somewhere and, and play to your heart's content. But when you once you put it into production, you know, you've, you've, you've extended your schema, and you've got 15 control panels, and then, you know, you accidentally set up a new conference number on the 15 server instead of the 14 server, and you have to work your way through. Well, how do I how do I deal with you know my test users that were over there, and now I need to move them back and things like that? It's just it's so much better to if you're not on the tap, just you know keep it away from production. And from a migration standpoint, I haven't tried migrating um, from from Link 2010 to Link 2013 as far as moving users. Is the experience pretty much the same as going from OCS R2 to, uh, to 2013 or to 2010? The benefit there is that it's all part of the topology, right? So once you introduce Link 2013, you're just going to see it in the topology. So when you move users, it's just a native experience, just like moving a Link 2010 user to another Link 2010 pool, right? And from an edge standpoint, right, if you look at the, right, if you look at topology builder, Right, you just associate a specific front-end server right, with a specific edge pool. So when you're going forward and migrating your, to your Link 2013 edge, you just essentially flip that bit to your 2013 edge server. So it's, it's, it's actually going to be easier um, than migrating from OCS 2007 R2 to, to Link. And, and maybe easier is the wrong word. More of a, a native Link experience would be the more proper way to say it. Great. And uh, another topic I wanted to touch base with was, you know, how are things different from a client perspective? What's the client look like now? What do we see that's new? Of course, it follows the uh, the Metro appearance, um, as uh, do all the Office applications now. Um, we mentioned earlier that uh, the, the persistent chat piece is built into it now as well. But f what else is new in the, in the client? The biggest thing for me that I noticed in the client, other than, you know, a, a little bit different color schemes and things like that, um, is the tab chat being built in. Um, it's not quite as seamless as I hoped it would be right now, but, um, you know, it's it's a really nice feature to have the tab chat so that you, you know, just have your line of, line of open conversations. As the day goes on, it gets to the point where I have to scroll through that box um, because I do end up with so many IMs open. But I really like that feature, personally. That's the big one for me. The, the group chat being built in as well is huge because now I actually use group chat. Um, otherwise, I mean, there's some changes, but, you know, nothing too crazy noticeable, at least that I can think of. Right. I like, I like the little rollover part where you roll over somebody's picture and it, and it gives you, you know, your common uh, options there, such as uh, new IM or call or whatever. 
Um, I, I, I like the persistent chat built into it as well. Um, still seeing a couple of little quirks in it, um, especially if you're in a response group. Um, but from, from my perspective, and I've been using the client for, I don't know, six months or so, um, it's, it's been really nice. I'm looking forward to using it along with the rest of uh, Office 2013. For, for guys who aren't playing with it at the moment, that it's, uh, it's got that same Metro look as the, the Office 2013. Um, that doesn't mean you can't deploy it alongside Office 2010, and that doesn't mean it requires Windows 8. Um, I believe it's Windows 7 and uh, Windows 8 is supported as far as the client goes. Now, Kevin, you wanted to talk about uh, WAC and um, its role in 2013. What's WAC all about? So WAC is kind of taking some of the functionality that was built into the reverse proxy and moving it away to uh, another place. So you still need your reverse proxies for the ABS and things like that. But the WAC server um, does, the, the biggest things I see that are valuable are the uh, extended PowerPoint functionalities. So with with a WAC server deployed in, in Link, you can upload your, your PowerPoint presentations, and they can have things like animation and whatnot in them. So, um, and I think we're using an old name too, right? So it's um, it's not necessarily WAC or is Yeah, it's it? called Office Web Apps now. That's a new name. Right. <laughs> yeah, so WAC is, uh, I've got to stop using that one. It's just like I have to stop calling it 15 and start calling it 13, right? Um, not confusing at all. <laughs> but um, the, the big thing for the for the Office Web App Server, there I got it, right? OWA, oh, geez, another acronym. Um, the, the big thing is the, uh, the PowerPoint functionality being so much smoother, um, having a, kind of a feature-rich PowerPoint experience that you didn't really have in 2010. Dina mentioned, um, right, and the reason why the PowerPoint uh, rendering is so much better is that the Office Web App Server is actually developed by the PowerPoint team itself, right? So the, the same kind of rendering functionality you see in the PowerPoint program itself is what you're actually going to see now when you're actually rendering uh, PowerPoints in uh, in the client, so using that Office Web App Server. So yeah, it's definitely a lot nicer. Um, if I, I don't know, I, I guess animation is not all that important, but you know the other things is, as far as it just being a more natural PowerPoint experience, um, I definitely think it's it's much improved. Um, I think it presents some. Uh, some questions around, well, how do you size that, and then do you use a reverse proxy in front of it, or do you use an HLB in front of it, and you know, or do you use both, and how does that complicate your environment, and how do you do network sizing for it? Those are the big questions that immediately when we start adding another internet-facing role that's doing something else, I start thinking about, like, how do I size this, and you know, how do I make sure this is secure, and is this one more place to troubleshoot? But in the end, the, the trade-off for all those extra questions is you get this this functionality and feature set that wasn't there before that definitely does improve the user experience. One thing I, I wanted to mention with Office Web App Server, right, is the DR functionality, right? It's not a link native role, but it does use URLs, right? And, and it is supported to put that Office Web App Server in your DMZ or in your internal network, right? And you sign, uh, you sign this server, right, this Office Web App Server to your pool, right, in if you remember Kevin mentioning, right, that's the DR strategy now is paired pools. So that would just mean you have a different uh, Office Web Apps infrastructure in, in each data center, right? One that's assigned to your primary pool and one that's assigned to your, to your secondary pool. So if a user were to fail over, right, your, 
primary infrastructure goes down and your primary data center, right, users start using that secondary data center, they'll just start using the Office Web Apps infrastructure and URLs uh, provided in band uh, from the link front end server for that uh, secondary data center. So you won't have to do anything like uh, GSLB failover, um, right, for your Office Web Apps URL, just again, a separate infrastructure in, in both your data centers. Great. And that covers pretty much uh, the topics that we have time for this week. Uh, we do have a couple of reviews that we wanted to touch on. And Tom, you had uh, wanted to talk about the Logitech conference cam that you've been playing with. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the um, BT950 cam, which you, you might have seen a few Twitter posts about. Um, it's a new kind of uh, really low entry price point for a, a multi-user conference cam for Link. Uh, it's Link and Skype certified, so it comes in about £200 in the UK. Um, so, and it's kind of comparable to a, a roundtable, uh, if you know those from the, the Polycom um, side, but it's it's not a 360 cam, it's just a wide angle cam and it's got pan tilt zoom. Um, and yeah, I've been playing with it a bit and it's it's really good for the money, it's, it's amazing. It's basically a speakerphone and a camera on a stalk, um, so you can get kind of two or three people in picture. Um, the pan tilt zoom is is done by a remote. It's not follow follow voice or anything like that, but it does give you some freedom to kind of move around the room a little bit when you're when you're talking or presenting. Um, definitely worth a look, I think, especially at the price point. Um, it's kind of uh, the kind of thing that you can have in in multiple rooms. It's it's USB powered or or plug into the mains. If you're USB powering it, you just need two USB. Uh, plugs into a laptop to get the right power draw so you can kind of just leave them lying around in conference rooms at that price so ready to go for people for video conferencing i'll tell you what they um they shipped me one of those over to to check out and um it's a really cool device um i don't know if anybody saw it but earlier this week i tweeted a picture where we were doing the hd video and we had the the five streams up and i stretched the the five streams across both of my 24 inch monitors so I had this, you know, huge, you know, picture of everybody, you know, five video streams all at once going. And it was really, really cool. And dead center in the middle of the picture, you'll see my my uh, 950 sitting there, and that's what I was using. Um, and it, it was just, um, it was just really neat to to have that device and and have the kind of sitting between the two screens and a, a really good place to look at it, still get decent eye gaze. Uh, one of the problems I always had, at least on video conferences. Um, is, is eye gaze is always bad if I have, like, my life cam sitting on top of my monitor or things like that. So I, I'm always kind of paying attention to that now, um, now that I do a little more video conferencing. So I really like that. And, you know, it, this is not at all the use it's meant for, right? So I'm a single home user with within a foot and a half of the camera. But I, I just love having a remote control for these things. Because when you sit on conference calls for long periods of time, you don't like sitting in the same spot. Um, sitting necessarily with your hands on the keyboard the whole time. You might want to mute when you got to reach over your keyboard and whatnot. So I, I really dig the remote control, having a mute button on it, and the up, volume up and down, the tilt and pan and stuff I haven't used a whole lot. But, again, I'm just sitting right in front of the thing. Um, and then I also set up my window sounds to go through it because I, I really enjoy listening to music during the day. So it's been really nice to have music playing all day through this thing. And then when I need to start up a call, the music's pausing or – or whatnot, so I, I really kind of enjoy that part of it. It's a decent little speakerphone in its own right, as far as audio goes. It's, it's funny you mentioned the eye gaze because I've definitely noticed that too. I've got two two twenty four monitors at home, 
um, with the life cam on top and it's well above kind of eye line so you have to be quite conscious about it whereas this this logitech cam the stalk puts it at about eye level so it makes it much more more natural even for one user and then you know 200 quid for that device is is achievable as a single user device if you're a regular user definitely how much is 200 pounds in us dollars <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Uh, he jumps over to XE to convert it. <laughs> um. Well, great. Well, thanks for that information, Tom. Um, and I wanted to touch base about uh, a product called Busy Light for Link. And if you have a lot of people that walk into your cube or walk into your office and just start talking and you're tied up on so with something on Link and they can't see your presence, then Busy Light is for you. What Busy Light is is a small device. It's about uh, five inches tall or so and on the top of it it has a little light that uh, is the same color as your presence indicator so when you're available it's green when you're uh, away it's yellow etc just plugs into your USB port and comes with a little swivel base on the bottom of it and you can stick it on top of your monitor or on top of your cube wall or whatever the case may be and it allows people approaching you to see what your presence is and they can then know whether it's it's okay to interrupt you and i think it, it works great i've been playing with it for uh, probably two months now and uh and it works great everybody but my little grandson seems to pay attention to uh, the busy light and uh, it retails for about 49.95 uh, you go to busylight.com and we'll certainly have that link as well as the link to the logitech conference cam on our uh, our website for the or our webpage for the episode so that wraps it up for uh, reviews. I did have one tip this week. Um, if you install a link server, the first server that you install gets all of the start menu uh, shortcuts, including one for, say, the control panel. But each subsequent server doesn't. And so if you're completely OCD like me, everything has to match. And you can resolve this by just running the admintools.msi file within the link install files. It's in the setup AMD64 setup folder. And uh, I've got a blog post uh, coming with some screenshots that'll uh, uh, probably make some more sense, but um, that's the tip for this week. Uh, we did have one question coming in from uh, our Facebook uh, group, and it is, why isn't link XMPP standards compliant and better documented? So, of course, I can't uh, uh, say why it's not better documented. That's a question from Microsoft. But uh, what do you guys think about the standards compliant question? Well, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think Microsoft built it with a couple of purposes in mind. And, you know, they've been more closely following the standards than, in, in, than historically. So, it, you know, now they're, they're doing a better job of following standards. Um, I haven't necessarily read the spec for XMPP. So I can't say for sure, you know, whether it's standards compliant or not and why, um, or, or what's missing from it. I, you know, I know XMPP, kind of like SIP, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. There are some, some standards around it, but everybody does it a little bit differently. And I think XMPP is kind of the same way. And, you know, Microsoft's probably not going to spend a ton of cycles on making sure it works with every different, uh, platform out there so you know the, the fact that it works for anything I think is pretty good um, and then it's you know a free role added on to the servers and it gives you some options so I, I think that part's nice um, I don't know I 
it'd, it'd be great for a follow-on um, for whoever posted that question to give some specifics about what they're talking about. Maybe, you know, uh, we could reach out and possibly get an answer. And Tom, you had a couple of comments about that as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm not sure on to the on the standards, but as uh, as Kevin says, if you can point out specifics, we can certainly go and try and find that out. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that even when XMPP is is perfect between Link and, and A another system, you're still getting a much reduced feature set compared to Link to Link natively or or Link to OCS. Um, so at best it's IM presence only. It's not voice. It's not video. It's not conferencing. Um, so yeah, XMPP is definitely a useful thing to have in certain scenarios, but don't think of it as, as an alternative to federating with uh, link to link. Great, great. Thanks for the info. And as always, um, for the listeners, you can you can post questions on our Facebook page, and we'll we'll try to get to them in future episodes. Uh, focusing now on events, uh, Kevin, you wanted to talk about your group and uh, and how it's going to help people with user groups in their areas. Yeah, so um, it, it's not just my group. Um, so a few a few friends uh, from around the the country and I have been working on putting together um, a group of UC user groups. So we have a website. It's www.linkusersgroup.com, and there's a listing of different cities where we have quarterly user groups events. Um, the goal of the events is just to obviously educate and evangelize Link and, and UC platforms in general and have open and honest discussions about those. Um, we keep it very vendor neutral. Um, we do occasionally have vendors do presentations, but there's strict rules on, you know, it's not a competitive scenario and whatnot. You need to talk in, in general terms, and, you know, we don't want someone coming in and just trying to sell to the group. Um, it's, it's more about, um, you know, just education in general. And we founded a group. It was uh, originally Randy, Wintel, uh, Britt Bobby, and Curry, and I. And, and we just founded the group to kind of have a way to centrally create content for events. Because one of the hardest things is, you know, we're doing these, these user groups, and we've got to dedicate four, five, six, eight, ten hours, whatever it is, to creating content every time we have a meeting. And then, you know, you know, next month you got to create more content. And the month after that you have to create more content. So what we did was we came up with the idea of sharing content across all of us and, and creating these groups. And then we've just founded a nonprofit. And the goal of the nonprofit is just to basically allow each group to be kind of have its own membership team and leadership team. But as a whole, we'll work with sponsors to make sure that every event has you know, some good door prizes to get get people in the door and has, you know, food and beverages and things like that, and it doesn't cost anyone locally any money out of pocket to run the group. So that's kind of what we've been doing now is just, you know, getting the, the nonprofit up and running and working with uh, a number of sponsors to try and get all the meetings well-funded so that, you know, the people who organize the events can, you know, basically just evangelize the product and, you know, they have a limited amount of time they have to spend since we're all so busy these days. Great. Now, is is the New York uh, Link user group part of that? Yeah, it is. Um, so Randy actually started New York, and he occasionally speaks at Boston or other uh, locations as well. Um, and we kind of all are together, although they have their own um, subdomain uh, or a main domain. We all have subdomains that are the same, and we all do work together, yeah, uh, at least the ones on the site. We're, we're definitely trying to get more started, so if you're in – you know, if you're one of the UC evangelists out there or consultants out there or somebody that's just really into, 
the whole product set, you know, feel free to, to reach out to us from the website or reach out to me on Twitter or anywhere, and we'd be happy to chat about setting up a group in your area. Yeah, I know that uh, Randy recently spoke at the New York User Group and actually hosted it uh, with link video so people that were not in the area were able to attend. And um, and it made it perfect because I was able to attend a meeting in New York from my office here in Michigan. So uh, hats off to Randy for pulling that off. So uh, thanks for that, Kevin. And, of course, that, that web address is uh, www.linkusersgroup.com. And, of course, we'll have that listed on our website as well. So wrapping up this week, um, we'll cover what everybody's doing. So, uh, Tom, what do you got going on this week? So uh, client work as usual this week, so uh, nothing particular to plug, um, but busy playing with the, the latest Link 2013 bits now. Um, and I've got a uh, quite a few half-finished uh, 2013 blog posts in my OneNote. So uh, in the next week or two, linkedup.com, uh, there'll be some, some good 2013 content going up there. Great. And I should mention that um, you'll find um, uh, bios for all the co-hosts uh, on our website, and we'll get some information up about the guests as well. Johan, what do you got going on this week? Well, not much uh, link for me uh, at the moment. I'm uh, going to do uh, some exchange things. So uh, I probably will blog something about uh, Link 2010 in combination with uh, Exchange Web Services, which I uh, had an issue with uh, with a customer, and also found a solution. So keep a uh, keep a look at my blog, and you will see uh, which issue I had and how I solved it. Great. Look forward to that. Uh, Elon, what about you? I'm just playing with Link 2013 in my lab and Exchange 2013 in my lab. Um, I'm thinking about uh, creating a fourth part for my persistent chat article. Talk more about the uh, you know management features, creator features, and uh, I'll probably be doing some Exchange stuff on like DAGs and uh, some changes there. So it's pretty much what I have going on. Great. I'm certainly going to try and get caught up on your uh, your info about persistent chat. So that was great info there, um, Kevin. What's up with you this week, <laughs> other than answering my questions? Uh, oh, well, that, that's only a quarter of the week. We're okay. Um, so the big part of the week for me, I'm, I'm going to Nashville to kick off the Nashville link, or Nashville UC Users Group, uh, our first event down there. So that's Tuesday night, the 31st, I believe. And then uh, Wednesday, coming back home and uh, celebrating uh, a birthday and hanging around town. I've got a couple of blog articles I want to – I want to write or want to release rather, but um, right now I'm not in there. There, you know, a lot of my articles tend to be, "Hey, I found this bug or this weird problem and or this common deployment mistake or something," and here's how I fixed it. And so that tends to be how you know the articles come about. The OCS guy side, it's not as much of a, "Oh, I just had this theory in my head and I wrote an article." It's more of, "Hey, this was broken yesterday and this is how we figured it out and fixed it." So I'm hoping that I can. Um, release a couple articles about LPE this week if uh, if I get clearance for those. Uh, the big thing is they're not necessarily um, public knowledge yet as far as the problem. I want to make sure I don't uh, aggravate anyone by posting things that aren't uh, aren't supposed to be published. And other than that, you know, I, I plan on – we're doing a really interesting set of topics for the user group this week. We're talking about a lot of our troubleshooting tools. So I plan on posting the, the deck – or some information I was using for the deck um, as soon as I can. Great. We'll have to have you back. I know uh, last episode we touched uh, quite quickly on 
uh, tools used for link troubleshooting, and I think we're going to focus uh, a future episode on that too, so we'll have to have you back for that. And uh, myself, uh, I get to play with some Polycom uh, SoundPoint 450s and see if I can get them to talk to Link. So that's the focus of my my week. Fun times. Like I need more phones on my desk. So that that pretty much does it for for us this week. I'd like to thank uh, our co-host uh, Tom Arbuthnot and Johan Veldes, our special guest Elon Shudnow and Kevin Peters. And our producer, Dave Stork, thanks for keeping us uh, uh, somewhat on track, Dave. And uh, our editor, Michael Van Horenbeek, hopefully, Michael, this, uh, this experience is a, is a little quicker than, than the last one. And um, uh, we're looking forward to uh, seeing the final output. We'd like to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. We're on Twitter at theucarchitects, on Facebook at facebook.com slash theucarchitects, and we have a group on LinkedIn. Our podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS client like Outlook. See our website for links to everything. Thanks, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.